You are listening to the Living Way Church podcast. For more information about Living Way Church, go to livingwaychurch.cc. Good morning. How are you today? Good to have you with us at Living Way Church. And um, I'm excited about today. We're going to unpack and, and uh, bring closure to our three weeks in Nehemiah. We've been talking about a series called Shift. And uh, we're asking you to shift or to change your view of, of what it means to be a community in Christ. And I'm not talking about just church, though I want you to look at Nehemiah through the lens of your church, but we're also talking about the, the greatest community ever, and that is the family. So uh, it's a flyover. Nehemiah is a, is a journal of a leader whose name is Nehemiah. Uh, it covers the very last event in the Old Testament, even though it's in the middle of the Old Testament. It's actually the very last event of the entire Old Testament. It's a thousand years after Moses. It's 400 years before Jesus. And uh, we're going to look at it through the lens of the church, through our family, and through our walk with God. Now, just to kind of give you a little background so that we're all on the same page behind the book, it's 150 years after Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians. Uh, the Israelites, uh, the people from Judah, were sent into exile as, uh, and they were driven out of their own uh, homeland under the control still of another nation, this time Persia, they were allowed to come back and repopulate their homeland under the uh, covering of that nation, which was Persia. Now, they came back, uh, about 50,000 people out of 3 million came back, very small percentage, came back and rebuilt the temple. Now, that was a great picture. I mean, we see that in Ezra. It's God establishing his relationship with us. And then a guy who didn't come back with them was still in Persia. In fact, not only was a regular guy in Persia now, but he was the butler of the king of Persia. He was his cupbearer. He heard news that the city walls had been broken. So he had a broken heart for these broken walls asked his boss if he could go back and he rallied a vision to reestablish these walls. Now, um, I want you to kind of take a look at this. This is, this is what GM, uh, Nehemiah accomplished. Uh, as you can tell, this is the leftover of the city that was before him and he was able to rebuild the walls. Let's kind of walk through a little bit the, the, just kind of the snapshot of, uh, of Nehemiah. He was, he was met with picketers and protesters and division. But as we unpacked, we find out that with a clear, inspired mission, with Holy Spirit determination, and with everyone working together, they did it. They rebuilt the main walls. Let's kind of take a look at what it looked like over the years. This is Jerusalem during the time of David. It was a small city. Uh, there was no temple. He just had a mission to build the temple, but he didn't build it. And on the far end was his palace, and this was known as the City of David. Okay? And then... David's son came along, Solomon, and he built the temple. Now go to the next one. You can see how he expanded. You can see where those steps are in the middle. That's where David's palace was. That's, the, uh, that's where David lived. And then Solomon actually moved his palace over by the temple, and he built this massive temple. Now over the course of years, uh, the, the kingdom divided in half, but Jerusalem continued to grow. And by the time the king Hezekiah came, this town had grown quite large. You can see still the, the inner wall there where the city of David was. You can see the temple. They expanded now the city on both sides and a large community over here. 
Now, when Hezekiah was king is when Babylon attacked. And Babylon wiped out the city, and it pretty much looked like this for uh, about 150 years. Um, they, they leveled the place. They were sent into exile for 70 years, and uh, they finally came back and rebuilt the temple under Nehemiah. And Nehemiah basically built the, the initial wall, and uh, this is basically what he did. He reestablished the city of David. The temple was rebuilt. They built orchards, and then people began to live in the remains of what was left of that old town where Hezekiah was. Now, over the course of 400 years, check this out. By the time Jesus showed up, boom, man, the city had like tripled. It was massive. In 400 years, that little city that Nehemiah had built had grown to a massive city. And over on the far left, that's Herod built himself a pretty nice palace over there. And uh, the temple, uh, Herod made even larger. He, he expanded the temple to be the largest it's ever been in the history of the world. And uh, basically, Jerusalem, um, 40 years after Jesus, this entire city was leveled to the ground completely. And there were millions and millions of people that were slaughtered and put to death at the hands of the Romans 40 years after Jesus. And the temple was destroyed, and they were left as exiles again And the city didn't even get populated by Jewish people again until the 50s and 60s of our generation. What happened after that was it was predominantly basically a ghost town for about 400 years. It began to be populated as a port city by Rome and then by Christians and then by Muslims and then by Christians and then by Muslims. Those are the great crusades where they fought back and forth over it. And then in the uh, 60s, uh, Israel became a nation again, and uh, it, it's actually quite bigger now than it was during the time of Jesus. So that's kind of the quick flyover of, of Jerusalem and where it sat with Nehemiah. Nehemiah, Nehemiah established a community, a city, and, and you see, when his heart broke over the walls, he wasn't breaking uh, his heart over stone. He wasn't crying over brick and mortar. He was not crying over the fact that they did not have stones in the wall. What he cried about and what his heart was broken about is what those walls represented. And that was a community of people that cared enough to protect each other, to look out for each other and a safe place to get to know God. So when he cried for the city, it wasn't for a structure. It was for the symbol that that structure represented. So as we look through the last part of Nehemiah, I want you to look through the structure, through what that structure represented. And that is a community that loves God, a community that is a safe place to care for each other and cares for each other and gets to know God and a safe place to know and to grow with him. A place of healing, a place of provision, a place to find your savior. That's exactly what he was building. And guess what? That's exactly what Jesus says the church is today. In fact, Jesus calls us the ecclesia, which is the new assembly, the new gathering, the new. He says in Matthew 5, we are that city on a hill. We are now that community. So as we read Nehemiah, I want you to think about this church. I want you to think about church in general. I want you to think about your family. We discover in the last chapters of Nehemiah, things actually went pretty bad for them. They, they went great. They got their act together. And then they kind of fell apart. And we find that Nehemiah challenges us that if we're going to move forward as a church, if you're going to move forward as a family, there are certain things that must be consistent in our lives if we are going to grow. If we are going to uh, 
move forward as a church and as a family. Nehemiah has already showed us last week what a healthy church and family looks like. This week, they have a grand celebration as they open up the wall. So let's jump right in. He reminds us there's no silver bullet. There's no one-time fix or repair. This is a lifelong maintenance, lifelong intention, a lifelong concentration to keep uh, our eyes on the upkeep and its evaluation. So here we go. A city can stay strong if we do this. We're going to pick up in Nehemiah 9, verse 1. It says, On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Now, you might be like, what is that all about? Sackcloth would be like, 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 like rags, you know, burlap. They would wear their disgusting poor clothes, and they would put dust, they would pick up dirt and put dust and ashes all over their self, and they would come to church like that. Aren't you glad we don't have a dress code like that? Get your, sack, get your, get your potato sacks at the door, and uh, we're going to pass out ashes and dirt and just cover your boy you come out of church needing a shower um but that's how they gathered because this was a sign of humility and brokenness they're saying god nothing that i own is of value everything that i have is rags to you and god my my attempt to clean my life is vain i am filthy before you so they would cover themselves with dirt and ashes and wear sackcloth rags as a sign of humility and it says those of israel Descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. He says, basically, those that were citizens of the city gathered together. And I want you to hear this out, that if, if you are a leader in your family, mom and dad, change begins with you, all right? It doesn't begin with your neighbor. It doesn't begin with a counselor. It begins with you. And as a church, it doesn't begin with a conference. It doesn't begin with looking at another church. It begins with us. And that's what they did. They, they separated themselves from those that were citizens of the city and they got on their face before God and they humbled themselves before him. It says, and they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. That's a long service. So, you know, about... Five hours, uh, they, five to six hours, they, they read from God's word. As people of the book, they began to respond to what God's word was saying. Verse uh, the three continues, says, and they spent another quarter of the day in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. You see, the word of God reveals the heart and the only right response when we actually listen to God's word is God help us. God, I am broken and God, I need you. And this is how I know God is moving in our church and moving in your life is that is when you hear God's word, the Holy Spirit begins to move and you can't help but say, God, I'm broken. God, I need you. God, there's something terribly wrong. You see, every time a man of God had a face-to-face encounter with the glory of God, their response was, woe is me. Their response is, God, forgive me. I need help. You are awesome. You are holy. You are great. And I am not. I am dirty. My attempts to be clean, that's why the sackcloth and the ashes, God, we are humbled. We need you. When confronted with God's word and the Holy Spirit, the only thing that follows that can follow is confession. Brokenness before God. All great moves of God start right here. 
For instance, if some of you guys, man, I'd really like a move of God in my family. Man, I wish my kids just got Jesus. You know, I wish our church would just get on fire. By the way, I think we got some great on fire people in our church. Some of you guys are crying out for your family. And I want you to know something that starts right there. It starts with you and God and confession. Every great move of God begins, whether it's a church, a community, or home, begins with confession before God, a brokenness before God. Some of you need to get on your face for your family and not pray for your husband and not pray for your kids. You need to confess your sin and your brokenness before a holy God. Confession is both a solo and a group event. That's what we find out here. But God is always the sinner. Confession begins with you, but a community that does it sees a mighty work of God in their life. So he goes on, verse 5, he says, And the Levites, that's the ministers, the worshipers, said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Because they were on their face. They were on their knees. Blessed be your glorious name. Again, he just said everlasting to everlasting. Great is your name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. Man, real confession based on the character and nature of God and the word of God reflects in an awestruck wonder of who he is. It's not about regretting that we got caught. God, I'm sorry. It's about God. You're awesome. Right? So it goes on to say, you alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens that means the galaxies and the universe beyond the universe and their starry host and the earth and all that's on it everything that my eyes gaze upon the seas and all that is in them all the things i can't see that are in this earth god you made these are yours you alone are the lord of them all you made them all he says you give life to everything and the multitude of heaven worship you if there's anything at all alive on this planet anything at all a blade of grass to your neighbor if there's anything at all that is alive it's because god says you can live some of you today need to realize you're alive not because of anything you've ever done but because god says i want you to live another day the reason that we have breath is because god gives us a breath to breathe he says you are the lord god who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. He says, man, you are the God who gives new identities. You are the God who calls men who are nothing and makes them something. You take the ordinary and make them extraordinary. You change the identity of those that look to you. He says, you have kept your promise because you are righteous. Nehemiah follows with this entire chapter in chapter 9 with the entire story of the Old Testament. It starts at creation, and it says over and over and over, you did this, and you did this, and you did this, and you did this. You called Abraham, and you gave him a mission in life. You called Moses. You protected Moses. You gave Moses your word. You empowered Moses. You delivered us from evil. You delivered us from Egypt. You set out the plagues, and you showed out your glory. You gave us manna from heaven. You gave us water in the desert. 
God, you led us by a, a pillar of fire during the night and a pillar of, of, a, of a cloud uh, by day. God, you fed us. You protected us. You gave us your spirit. You gave us your grace. You showed us compassion. You showed us forgiveness. You are exceedingly patient and you never forgot me. God, you remembered. And God, I will remember. That entire chapter is a beautiful picture of God. You, 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 you. I want you to write this down. When we understand who God is, all we can say is, God, it's you. That's all we can say. When we understand who God is, that's all we can say, you. God, it's, it's about you. You know, we live in a culture that is so void of God. The media, culture, movies, music, it's as if God doesn't even exist unless we make him exist. It's as if he is not even there. The world has no idea that the fact that they even breathe air is because God sustains their life. We are so void of this breath, this day, and this moment. We live as if he's out of the office rather than seeing his hand in everything that we look at. I want you to try that. Try that today. Everywhere you look. I'm looking at this chair, and you know what? I see God because I see a unique design that God gave a person through the creation of their mind to be able to give you a chair that you could sit in. Just the pattern on this carpet. I think, man, this didn't come from from the mind of a man. This came from the mind of God who infused into the mind of a man who gave us the ability to construct a chair, to put a building together. God gave us this, the knowledge. God gave us the ability to put the whole notion of lights and fixtures and electricity together. There's nothing that we see that's not God. Nothing. We don't just have to look at nature and see God. We can look at even everything that we have produced as an effort of saying, God, your glory is shown through us because you gave us that ability. You gave us that power. You gave us that knowledge. You gave me the breath to live another day so I could build that house, so I could build that product, so I could write that paper, so, God, I could have these children. God, the only reason I have clothes is because you gave me a job so that I could go buy clothes in a car that you gave me, God, so that I could wear clothes and not come to church in sackcloth and ashes. Right? Everything. I want you to experiment with that today. Everywhere you look, I want you to think, and see, God, that's you. That's you. And you know what? There's, I even see God in, in the evil things because it, it identifies the fact that God has given something beautiful and we have a tendency to pervert it, right? For instance, sex is beautiful, but we pervert it and we twist it and we misuse it outside of his will. God created it beautiful. And even when you see the perverted, you think, man, that could be so beautiful if it was under God's plan and design, right? We see God in everything. This is what they said. God, we see you. We see you. We see you. As they prayed and confessed, they turned to God with their eyes opened wide to their sin and they had a light bulb moment. God, we need you. Verse 31, it says, but in the great mercy, you did not put and into them or abandon them. It says, even though we ran away from you, God, for you are gracious and merciful. Now, therefore, our God, the great God, the mighty and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. Don't let all the, the hardship that we've given you. This is the hardship that has come on us as your response to our disobedience on our kings and our leaders and our priests and our prophets, on our ancestors, 
on, on your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. That's a verse for somebody today. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Some of you, that's your story. Some of you look in the mirror and you say, man, with all that's gone through in my life, all those trials, all that dumb stuff I brought onto myself, all those things that were laid upon me by my family and those that have hurt me, God, all the things that I have gone through, all that has happened to me, God, you are righteous and faithful. You are good and faithful and in control. That's all we got sometimes, right? And when you don't understand what's going on in your life, God, you're good, you're righteous. When you don't understand what God's doing and what's going on, God, you're faithful. And as they declared already, God, when you don't know what's going on, God, you are in control. They declared that day and put it in writing. And this is what they did. What they did next is they said, we will serve the Lord. They made a vow. They made a vow before God and with each other. They wrote it out. They wrote the vow. They all signed the vow as a contract. And they said, things are going to be different. Things are going to be different. Unfortunately, due to technical issues, the end of this meeting was not recorded. Thank you for listening to the Living Way Church podcast. If you enjoyed this message, we hope you come visit us in Garland, Texas. For directions and more information about the church, go to www.livingwaychurch.cc.